How many of you grew up in church? Well, a bunch of church people. <laughs> I didn't grow up in church. I grew up on the other side of the tracks in Antioch, Tennessee. They had churches over there, but we didn't go. And um, so I pretty much grew up redneck, hell-raising, beer-drinking. Can you say that in church? And um, I just did. So um, a little rough, to say the least. So I uh, graduated from high school and went off to the University of Tennessee and working my way through school there. And I met my wife, Sharon, and we started dating and Everything's going real good, and we decide to get married, and we graduate from college, and we get married. I thought all that was all good, because, I mean, I had continued some of my behavior <laughs> through college. Misbehavior is the correct word. And um, then we get married, and my wife decides she's a Baptist. I don't know where that came from exactly, except that probably she grew up Baptist. But the whole time we were dating, none of this ever came up. Then we get married, and her idea is that now we're married, we're going to behave, and we're going to go to church, and like college was in our past, and I was like, no, that, I didn't really sign up for that deal, and so she said, we're going to church, and I said, well, who's we? Because I'm not. I'm not going to church. So she started going to this little Baptist church, and she would go and cry every Sunday because I wouldn't go, and those little Baptist preachers, would, elders would pray with her at the altar for her heathen husband, and and so I'm you know, 22 years old and married, lost as a ball in tall weeds, to say the least. And I got fired from my job, which I probably deserved. I still don't know exactly why I got fired, but um, I know I deserved it, I'm sure. And um, I probably would have fired me. But um, I took a job selling houses over on uh, Old Hickory Boulevard over here on Hearthstone. Y'all know where Hearthstone is? It was new then. That's how long ago the story is. And um, there was a guy running Radnor Homes for Nashville named Etzel Charles. He goes to this church now. And Etzel was running Radnor Homes. He was the boss. And I was an on-site sales agent, and I was selling houses for him over there. And he'd come around and talk to me, and he, he was very outspoken about his Christianity, but in, in a weird, non-icky kind of way. You know what I mean? And it was like, he, he took me up, you know, he, he won National Home Builder of the Year that year because he was the first guy in Nashville to put the um, master suites on the other end of the house from the other bedrooms to get the mom and dad away from the kids, <laughs> right? And it was like a breakthrough, you know? And, and so he's walking me through this master suite and it had the big tubs and all that stuff. Some of the first people to put big tubs in Nashville and all this thing. He's telling me about how he, this is all romance. And I'm looking at this old man talking about romance kind of weird. And uh, he said, I said, he said, you know where I learned this? And I said, no, where? He said, in the Bible. Said, what? He said, yeah, I was reading the best love story ever written. It's called Song of Solomon. And he said, he gave me this idea. I went, what? He was getting merchandising ideas out of the Bible. Weird. And you know, we're building new homes for people, which is an opportunity to see people at their worst. And, uh, he's handling all this conflict with such grace and dignity and always a smile and Always strong. He wasn't a wuss. He was strong, but he was, oh, this guy's different. Well, I quit that job and I went into this, one of those multi-level things. I think it's like federal law. You have to be in a multi-level for 20 minutes in your 20s. So I was for 20 minutes in my 20s. And 
So one of my beer drinking buddies, there's a lot of beer in this story, and um, got me into it, and <laughs> I'm not against beer, don't send me hate mail, but um, it was a, a reflection of a misbehavior in those days, and so he uh, gets me in this multi-level thing, and we would go to happy hour and drink for three hours and discuss how we could grow our business, which is kind of like a bunch of teenagers sitting in the woods smoking pot discussing the meaning of life, right? <laughs> It ain't there, you're not going to find it, okay? And, and, and so, oh man. So we went to one of these um, pep rally things that they have in those multi-level things and down in Birmingham. And we got in the car and drove down to Birmingham to get the answers to our questions. We had all these questions about why we couldn't grow our business. had no idea it was our lack of character. But um, we drove our, our car down to Birmingham and, and went to the Alabama Theater it's one of those old-time theaters, holds 810 people, beautiful old theater. I've actually done an event in there since. And, um, uh, you know, they had the people, they prayed them out all day long about how smart they were and how much money they were making and how you could live your dream and buy a yacht and, that, and all this stuff. And, and they put up their checks and how they're making $422,000 a minute or whatever it is, you know, that stuff. And so the guy that's winning the whole thing, he's like the big dog or whatever. We're waiting on him. He's the... He's the you know, he's the anchor at the end of the night. And so we had five questions we had written down. We, okay, we're going to Birmingham. If we get to answer these five questions, we're going to be successful. These are the things that are keeping us from winning. If we can get the answer to these five things. So this guy gets on the stage at the end of the night. I think he had my five things as his outline. I mean, he puts his check up there. He made $832,000 in 20 minutes or whatever he was doing. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but not much. You know how they go on. And so, uh, and he, he answered I'm looking at my buddy, and I'm going, this guy's got our, he's got our questions. He knows where we're, and we're sitting up in the balcony, two little 23-year-old kids, you know. And he gets to the end of the thing, and by now he owns us, right? Because already he was the big dog, right? He already had credibility, but now he's answered our questions. He owns us. And we're, we're sitting on the whatever he says to do, we're going to do it. This guy's, this guy's got it figured out. And he gets to the end, he goes, there's one more thing. We go, no, we got all five, it's okay. That's what happened in our mind. He goes, there's one more thing. He said, if you don't know God, and you don't let the character of Jesus Christ intersect your life, you're going to always struggle in business. And I'm like, Dude, that wasn't on here. It's just God stuff. There it is again. Well, me and my redneck buddy, we go back to the hotel. We get out the Gideon's Bible out of the nightstand. <laughs> and of course, it's... it's King James English, right? So it's Shakespeare and Jesus, right? There's no chance these two rednecks are going to figure this out, right? There is no way we're going to wander through and figure out, you know, that God sent his only son. But I came home, I told my wife, I said, we're going to church. And she said, who are you and what have you done with my husband? And we went to a couple little churches and we ended up over at Christ Church on Old Hickory Boulevard. And back in those days, there was about 400 folks there. It later became about 7,000. We went and sat on the back row, and people are raising their hands like they knew the answer to some question. I told Sharon, I said, if they get out the snakes, we're leaving. <laughs> and we'd sneak out the back door and sneak out the back door, and finally the pastor and his wife would catch us and start hugging on us. And um, pastor in Hardwick and Montel's passed away now. His first wife hugged us into the kingdom. I ended up meeting God there, being baptized there. Learning the Bible there changed my life. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, a guy that goes to church here the other day, and he asked me a passive-aggressive question. 
A passive-aggressive question is a question that you think you already know the answer to, and you're trying to not make a statement, but instead you do a question because it's a southern thing to do. And he said, so what is Fellowship Bible doing to evangelize the unsaved? Now, I go and speak in a lot of churches all over America, and I hear everybody criticizing the church here, criticizing the church there. Church is just a mess, y'all. It's got people in it, okay? It's chaotic as crud. There's always some... If you, listen, if you ain't mad, you're not in church, okay? I mean, somebody's going to bump into you and rub up against you the wrong way, and if you don't believe me, I'll talk a little too long, and you'll get the opportunity in the parking lot, okay? I mean, it just... That, that's, life, that's how life works. So I'm always a little offended when somebody starts attacking the church. He really wasn't attacking the church. He was asking an honest question, but it wasn't really a question. He was saying we should do more here. And I said, you know, I think we're doing plenty. He said, what do you mean? I said, so how many people you led the Lord this year? See, he didn't like that question because that wasn't passive-aggressive. It was just like in your face. It was passive-aggressive too, wasn't it? So we got a good talk. You know, I think you and I might be the best evangelistic program that any church could ever have. And as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that's a biblical methodology for leading people that don't know God. See, that's how I met God, was that way. Now, we booked me to speak about six or eight months ago, and then these pastors in their brilliance decided to teach Revelation during the time I'm speaking. (laughs) I don't know who came up with that idea, but they dropped me in the middle of Revelation, so next week you'll get back to the smart people, okay? But... um, but I did fish around and find a scripture in Revelation so I could kind of fit in, okay? So they were under the scripture to fit something, so we did. So Revelations twelve eleven, And they overcame him, meaning Satan or the devil, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their, say it with me, of their testimony. testimony. Now, Prof a couple of weeks ago was making fun of testimonies, so I immediately knew what I was going to speak on. As soon as Prof starts making fun of testimonies, I'm speaking on testimony. No question about it. Because testimonies are powerful. They're powerful for a lot of reasons. For instance, if you're in marketing right now, if you do online marketing, we do a ton of online marketing with our team, and a lot of our products are sold to the consumer directly through online. If you don't have testimonies, if you don't have a rating system, four stars, five stars, a chance to give feedback, a chance to give a review on the product, if you don't have testimonies, depending on the product line and the price point and what it is, the actual, you know, the space you're playing in, but it can cost you as much as 25 to 35% of your sales not having feedback on your site. Now, that's B2C, B2Consumer. If you're business-to-business, business, numbers will be different. But testimonies are important. We believe my wife gets ready to go to a movie. She goes, that's a five-star movie. And I said, it says who? A bunch of people that went to a movie just like us? They all liked it. Does that mean I'm going to like it? Usually not, because I'm pretty much contrarian in every area of my life. And, and so, and especially if the critics like it. If Hollywood likes it, that's it. I'm done. There's no chance I'm going to like it. Oh, man. And the ones that the Hollywood, the Hollywood people hate, they're the ones I just love. I mean, I, I, just, I just love a sappy, good old, simple story where the hero wins at the end. I'm okay with that. That's why I go to a movie. My wife wants to see the number of stars. Number of stars on a book. Number of stars. It's five star. What are, the, what are the reviews saying? Testimonies change everything. And the neat thing about your testimony is you really can't get in an argument about it. We're not discussing theology. We're discussing what God did in my life. And you can't really argue with me about what God did in my life. Because God changed my life. I mean, I I told you where I came from. We've been married 33 years. You ask my wife, Sharon. She says we've had 25 good years of marriage. (laughs) 
I mean, I was not the husband. I'm not a perfect husband now, but I'm a whole lot better than I was at the start. God changed my life. He changed the way I raised kids. My kids weren't raised the way I was raised. I mean, they're all, they all turned out. Hello. None of them living in my basement. Life's good. You know, I'm reading in here how to be married. I'm reading in here how to raise kids. And kids are like, Dad, what's this rod stuff? Come here, baby. I'll show you. <laughs> Learn to live my life that way. It changed my life. Now, you can argue what you want to argue about theology, but you can't argue with me about God changing my life because he changed my life. And that's my story. That's powerful. My old pastor, Brother Hardwick, used to say, or does say, a man with an experience is not at the mercy of a man with an opinion. And Twitter's made it famous for everybody to have an opinion now, even when they shouldn't be able to. Everybody's got an opinion now. And we give everybody a trophy so everybody thinks their opinion matters. It doesn't matter. A man with an experience, I've been there. I'm not going to argue with an atheist doctrine. All I can tell him is what happened to my life. I, I'm not going to argue with an agnostic about social issues. All I can tell him is what happened in my life. You can't really argue that. So because I met God that way, I'm real sensitive about marketplace, mainstream ministry, ministry out there, evangelism out there. My wife is a um, workout freak, and... Um, which is wonderful because the results are amazing. I mean, she has zero body fat. It's just ridiculous. I never thought I would say the phrase 55-year-old hottie, but I can. And um, amazing. Uh, but she goes to the Y every morning. I mean, it's just ridiculous, y'all. And, and then she comes home. She goes to the Y, runs with those women, you know, like in a little running herd. They've got their little herd they run with. And um, then she comes home and she makes one of those shakes, right? She goes and gets the, all these things that should never be juiced together and juices all this healthy toxic or non-toxic or whatever it is stuff. But it looks like, it looks like nuclear waste when she gets it done. And then she drinks it. Y'all seen that? And then she wants me to have some. No, I'm not drinking that. I can smell it from here. No, ooh, no. And, and she sets this cup formerly holding toxic waste, this glass, in the sink, and she'll turn the faucet on with warm water. And the clean water starts to go into the glass. The clean, warm water starts to go into the glass. And she'll walk away in the kitchen, start doing something else, or maybe even go change out of her workout clothes. And, you know, the weirdest thing happens when you do that. You've done it, too. If you pour the clean water in long enough, if you just let the clean water run in there, the clean water displaces the crud, and pretty much, pretty soon, you've got a glass of clean water. It takes about 34 seconds to do it. And the video wasn't even speeded up. It turns out maybe you and I are clean water for the culture. Maybe we're supposed to go into the culture and displace the crud. You don't have to argue about the crud. You just got to take up space so there's no room for it. With your cleanliness. And the way you live your life and who you are. Displacement changes everything in the culture. You don't have to shout down the other side and have a big argument with somebody about their beliefs on something. Although I kind of enjoy it. I'm a hillbilly. I like arguing. It's good. But it really doesn't. I never met anybody who said, you know, people yelled at me till I met Jesus. <laughs> you know, those people picketing that movie, that's why I met Jesus. 
Now, if you want to pick it a movie, I'm not mad at you, but just it, it's not an evangelistic outreach, okay? You're making a statement on principle, I understand, about what the content of that movie is. You don't like it. I get that. I understand that. And I've got a friend named Nancy Alcorn. She decided she was not going to pick at abortion clinics. Instead, she was going to gather up money and provide care for girls who had gotten pregnant and give them an alternative. And so she took up space in that discussion by providing a clean alternative that didn't involve killing your child. And, and, and she doesn't condemn people who have been through an abortion. I'm not talking about that. All I'm saying is, is instead of just yelling at the people given abortions, she started caring for people who thought they needed one and gave them another option, provide all their health care, everything up until they have the baby, and then they can put it up for adoption or they can keep the baby, whichever they choose to do. No pressure from her either way. She took up space. She displaced. I think that's powerful. And you also, you can't be one of those icky Christians. You ever met an icky Christian? You meet people in Middle Tennessee, you know, we got more Baptists than people, right? You ever meet people that get oversaved? That's what my friend Michael Jr. calls it. He's a Christian comedian. He says, people get oversaved. So they're so enthusiastic about their, cry, about, their, about their Jesus, and they're running around talking about it in, all, in such a way that people who don't know Jesus are freaked out and geeked out. It's like, because they can't even have a normal conversation. You know, I just tweet something, and, and somebody, 17 people will tweet back, and Jesus, you left out Jesus. I was talking about a car. <laughs> Jesus and Jesus? What you, and Jesus? This is crazy. I mean, Michael talks about it. He says, you know, sometimes you lose your keys. You go, I can't find my keys. They go, you need the keys of the kingdom. You ever meet those people? <laughs> and I'm a little thirsty. You should be thirsty for the Lord. What? <laughs> They're just icky Christians. I mean, nobody meets God because of that stuff. That doesn't lead people to the Lord. You lead people to the Lord because you get in their life, you love them, you meet them where they are. You show them with your life that God can change a life. And they meet God. That's displacement. That's throwing clean water in the dirty until the dirty's gone. It's real. There's three areas, if you want to take notes, that you can work on displacement. I work on them all the time, and I'm not that good at it, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. The first area is on a personal level. How we conduct our personal lives makes a big statement about our faith and the impact our faith has had on our lives. When I was in the real estate business years ago, before I went broke, I was in my 20s. I had a whole bunch of property over in East Nashville, North Nashville, a bunch of junky stuff. And I had a few, about five or six really nice houses, or compared, they were nice houses. One of them was over here off of um, Old Hickory Boulevard in Brentiock. You all know where that is? Like off, off uh, Edmondson Pike over in there. You know what I'm talking about? And... Um, it was on Toby Lynn Drive. Nice little 2,000 square foot white brick ranch. Uh, had a nice basement under it. And I had it up for rent. And a real estate agent called me. I'll tell you how long ago this was. 100 years ago. Nissan was moving to Smyrna to install their Nissan plant, their manufacturing plant. That's how long ago it was. And, and so this guy calls and says, hey, I got some tenants for this house. They want to rent it. But there's only one problem. They're Japanese executives coming here from Japan to be some of the startup team at Nissan, and they don't speak English. I said, well, I'm not against that. I'm sure their money's green, but how are we going to communicate? Because Hillbilly doesn't translate to Japanese very well. 
And he goes, well, it won't be a problem. He said, they'll have a translator for the first few months. He said, but the way that as disciplined as these people are, he said, you're going to love it. He said, you know, they'll, they'll know enough English to talk to you in 90 days. And by the time they leave in two years, their children will speak better English than yours. And that's probably true. So I go over there to meet these folks. They come up to my rental house. They took off their shoes on the front porch and walked into my rental house. And I went, oh, this will work. <laughs> yeah. They moved into the house, and a short story is they lived there two and a half years. They paid five to ten days early the entire time they lived there. The house was nicer when they left than when they moved in, and they never wore shoes in it, to my knowledge, the entire time they lived there. Now, I'm not a real smart boy, but pretty quick I got on the phone, I asked that real estate agent, and said, you got any more of these? I got some more houses. I like this result. I like being paid early and people taking care of my rental property. These Japanese people had just witnessed to me about their culture. I ended up renting the eight or ten families of Japanese executives over the years. Every one of them I had that experience with except one guy whose wife was crazier than a bug. But the rest of them was just, I mean, the rest of them were perfect. It was unbelievable. And I got to thinking, man, I hope as a Christian when people interact with me in business and in a transaction that it makes them want to rent to or deal with more Christians. Those Japanese had a great testimony about their culture and how it had impacted their behavior. Pretty strong stuff. And you know, it doesn't have to be complicated on a personal level to displace. If if you love Jesus and and you're a Christian, you you ought to be happy sometimes. (laughs) Try smiling. I mean, if you're happy, notify your face. You know, really. Sometimes I go places and these Christians look like they were weaned on a pickle, y'all. Just awful. Like the whole thing's a big burden or something. You got confused. Now, is our life perfect? No, our life's perfect. I've had plenty of garbage happen to me since I met Jesus. There's no guarantee you're not going to walk through trash. As a matter of fact, you're probably going to walk through some trash. But you're going to walk through it because you're walking with Jesus. So be smiling. I'm not saying fake it. It's okay to be sad sometimes. It's okay to grieve sometimes. But it's also okay to understand that this Christian thing's a party. Get with it. Have some fun. And when you go out to eat on Sunday, leave a tip. Servers don't want to work on Sundays. You know why? All these Christians go out to work, go out to eat. Only time they go out during the week, some of them, and, and they don't leave a tip. It's the worst tipping day of the week. That's horrible. And we know it's not the heathens there. They're still in bed from Saturday night. So I know it's us. Leave a tip. And if you can't afford to leave a tip, don't go out to eat. Go home, heat up the leftovers. Those people work hard in those restaurants. You ever carried one of those trays? Leave a tip, a big one. And occasionally leave a ridiculously big one, just for fun of it. Leave a Jesus track, how to meet the Lord and no money. What is wrong with us? Lost our minds. Of course they don't want to meet Jesus. All those Jesus people are cheapskates. I don't want to be like them. Leave a tip and smile. Be pleasant. Even if the food's late, you can challenge the food being like, need my food, I'm hungry. You can do that, but you can do it in a way that's fun. You don't have to be a twerp all the time and then expect people to come to my church. No, I'm not coming to your church. 
I'm looking at your life. No, thank you. You know? I don't want to be that guy. I've been that guy sometimes, y'all. But I don't want to be that guy. My son's in his 20s. He's a big young lifer, big counselor and stuff in that. And, and so he's evangelist all the time. He'll evangelize a rock, man. It's ridiculous. And um, he's got a buddy of his he's been hanging out with, a kid. There's a childhood friend, grew up with him here, Brentwood. And good kid. Kid's been a good, I've known the kid his whole life since first grade. They were in first grade together. A bunch of those kids have run together through their, our kids' growing up time. And one of these kids, this kid's gotten into a cult. Not occult, a cult. And Daniel said, the frustrating thing, Dad, is he's a better person now. He's got a positive, in, a positive witness to this cult because he's a better person than he was before he's in the cult. It's kind of hard to talk him down from that tree right now, you know? And I said, what do I do? I said, you just keep loving him because it'll happen. I mean, there's all this toxic stuff going on. It's going to come. It's, you know, but for now, his behavior has changed positively. He's a better witness for that cult than I've been sometimes for my Jesus. Lord, forgive me. So I'm always open about my faith. I always say stuff like Merry Christmas. Makes people mad. Getting ready to do CBS early show up in New York, and lady comes back to the green room. We're doing a thing for Christmas and how to save money at Christmas or something. She says, "Now you say Happy Holidays," and I said, "No, you say Happy Holidays. I say Merry Christmas." And she said, "Are you one of those people who's mad about this?" I said, "Do I say I'm mad? I'm not mad. I'm just Merry Christmas." She said, well, "All the people in the booth are Jewish." I said, "Well, if they do the interview, they can say Happy Hanukkah." So <laughs> it's it's good. I'm not I'm not mad at them, so they don't need to be mad at me. I'm I'm a Christian. It's Merry Christmas. It's Jesus's birthday. Happy birthday, Jesus. I might even say that. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> well, you can't do that. And I said, well, I'm on in three minutes. What are we going to do? Because somebody's got to do the interview. It's going to be me, I guess. So we'll figure this out. And I, I, you know, weirdest thing, they didn't get any hate mail because I said Merry Christmas. They lived through it. It's just weird. People are just weird. Second area we can displace in is we displace professionally. In our profession... We're taking up space. You're going to meet more people that only got, know God at work than you ever will at church or at an evangelistic outreach. Your workplace is a mission field. And, you know, and how you behave in that mission field matters a lot. If you're an employer, how you hire people, how you fire people, how you pay people, how you act when there's problems... People are looking at that if you say you're a Christian. You ought to be the best employer in town if you're a Jesus follower. We win best place to work every year. We won one, of the, one of the companies in the area, eight years we won best place to work. You know why? Because we're best place to work. We work real hard at it. At taking care and loving on our people. And we're real clear when there's conflict. We're not pushovers. We're, we get stuff done. And we bring excellence too. I'm not going to walk around talking about being a Christian in the marketplace, then half-butt do your work. Bring it. Super Bowl, baby. Strap it on. Buckle up, buttercup. We got stuff to do here. If you're going to put a fish on the back of it, drive it right. Especially if you got an Igbox sticker too, right? <laughs> drive it right. You're going to run an organization? Run it with excellence. And if you're an employee, here's an idea. Work while you're at work says something about your Jesus when you're lazy, when you're checking Facebook all day. If you're not in social media, stay off Facebook. It's not your job. You can do that when you get home. 
It's not your job. You're supposed to be working there. Those people are paying you. Get there a little early. Leave a little late. Smile. Work hard. Tell the truth. Be the person who brings up brilliant ideas in a meeting. Be the smartest person that's read a book lately. Bring excellence to the marketplace. It displaces the filth. Because Christians sometimes get a reputation of being dumb and not being up to standard. And, you know, well, this is a Christian organization. They don't quite bring it. No, man, we bring it like extra. Like we were at Willow Creek Tuesday night doing an event up there. We had about 5,000 folks at a Smart Money event. And our team, when we get done with an event, our team and all our volunteers, we clean the church for them. Say so what? Yeah. You know why? Nobody else does that. That's why. Oh, we do it in secular auditoriums too. We get, the, we get the janitorial staff out and we ask them if we can use their brooms and we sweep the place. You're weird. I know. You know what? They ask why we do that too. And we tell them. Because we're followers of Christ and we believe in excellence. We believe in going above and beyond. Carrying the pack the extra mile. And we're truth tellers too. It makes people uncomfortable. We tell the truth. Real clear. Some people don't like that. They think Christians should be wusses. Christians aren't wusses. Jesus wasn't a wuss. He turned over the tables of the money chambers and cracked a whip on their back. That's your sweet little Jesus. So we have sweet little Jesus and we have justice Jesus. He's both, there. He's both of them, right? So we're going we're to be in the marketplace. I've got a good friend that's a doc. He works on our family. Every time we bust a bone, bust a knee skiing or something, Sharon busted a knee skiing. She had to have her knee done and Daniel busted a collarbone playing ice hockey a few years ago, and Paul Thomas fixes our family. Paul's a believer. He doesn't go to this church, but he's a strong believer. Puts our bones back together. And before he does the x-ray, and before, certainly before he does surgery, he says, can I pray with you? And I say, oh, yeah, that's why we're here. We hope you're a good surgeon, too. <laughs> but we're here because of who you are as a man. You've become a family friend over the years. Got another friend in the marketplace here. Has a great ministry. It's called Heating and Air. Lee Company. Bill Lee. If you know Bill Lee, you know a man of God. Bill doesn't go to this church either. Good man. Sits on philanthropic boards all throughout the whole county and area. Very, very generous. Wins best place to work too. People are sharp. Work there. They get the job done. He's got a marketplace ministry. He's displacing taking up space in the heating and air field, leading people to the Lord. Sometimes I hear people say, I'm leaving business, I'm going into ministry. No. You're leaving one ministry and going into a different kind. Nonprofit is not in the Bible. That's an IRS designation. And I'm pretty sure IRS does not designate holiness. I saw it in second hesitations. It's there. Nonprofits that aren't, it's, it's just an accounting function. Nonprofits that aren't profitable close. They're not open anymore. You have to take in more than you have go out, regardless of whether you're, quote, for profit or not for profit. You're not more holy because you work for a nonprofit. Nonprofits are great. I got no problem with them. But don't say that Bill Lee doesn't have a ministry because he's for profit. Or Paul Thomas as a doc doesn't have a ministry because he's for profit. Oh, he does. They do. My friend Rabbi Lappin wrote a book called Thou Shall Prosper. In the book, he says, God is inordinately pleased when we are obsessively, compulsively preoccupied with the needs of others. 
how we behave Monday through Saturday determines whether someone will follow you in here on a Sunday. How we act. Last thing is you can displace financially. If you handle God's money, God's ways, it works, and you're going to end up managing wealth for the kingdom. Now, if you understand God's ways, you don't own it, you're managing it for God, and you're going to have some wealth that you're managing for God. And money takes up space. Money builds orphanages. Money builds hospitals. Money builds universities and libraries. Money feeds the hungry and heals the sick by paying for that operation to be there. Money drills wells in Hades and buys mosquito nets in Africa. Money does those things. Money takes up space. Money displaces things. And money's not evil. The Bible does not say money is evil. The Bible says the love of money is evil. It's just a tool. It's a tool to be used just like your life is for the kingdom and for the good of the kingdom. Dallas Willard says in The Spirit of the Disciplines, a book he wrote, he says, if Christians declare money to be evil and therefore abandon the management of money for the good of the kingdom, by default they have left only the other side with the wealth. And all of that will, evil will prosper and grow. And trafficking and drugs and prostitution and crime will increase when we the people of the book choose to abandon this and not use it to displace and take up space for our side and to love on people using this. You can feed hungry people. $1,000 will buy a single mom a car. $10,000 will buy 10 single moms a car. That's displacing. And I don't know of any other religion that's going to cause people to do that at the level and the frequency that Christianity will. So, I remind people all the time that God changed my life. I was up in Chicago the other day taking, getting in a radio award, this silly thing they gave me that after 25 years of yakking and wouldn't go away, they decided I was going to stay, so they had to say something. And... Um, I told those guys, all those radio goobers in that room, these supposedly important people from L.A. and New York and everything, I said, guys, I'm different than a lot of folk. I'm a turtle on a fence post. Now, all those people don't know what a turtle on a fence post means. Some of y'all don't because you grew up in Brentwood. But um, (laughs) if you're ever walking along a country lane and you see a turtle up on a fence post, a lot of questions will go through your mind about that. But there is one thing we all know for sure. He didn't get there by himself. And I didn't get where I am by myself. I'm 100% sure a lot of folk helped me. And my God has done bigger things in my life that I could have ever done in my life. And that's why I told that crowd and they all kind of looked at me. But see, C.S. Lewis says, humility is not being humiliated. Sometimes we talk about humility being, oh, poor, I'm a worm, I'm a Christian worm, I'm a Christian worm. You're not a Christian worm. You're a royal ambassador, the Bible says. You should walk into the throne room of any kingdom on this earth and be an ambassador for Christ. Green room, throne room, workplace, wherever it is. C.S. Lewis says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. 
We, the people of the book, are other people-centered. We're not self-centered. And when we act that way, it changes everything. The neat thing is when you get that kind of humility, immediately what follows is gratitude. You become grateful. Thank you, Lord. You become grateful to the people in your life that have helped you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you know, gratitude is unbelievably attractive. Grateful people are the most attractive people on the planet. Some of the ugliest people are entitled people. They think they're due something. They're not doing anything. Just fall on your face and be grateful. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Then the next thing that happens as soon as you go from humility to contentment is, or, or from humility to grateful, you become content. The last book I wrote is the only book I've written that's not a New York Times bestseller. That's kind of funny. Not really. Um, but it's, it's a Christian book. That's why I wrote it, just for the Christian market. So I didn't expect it to be a huge seller. Um, it's about what the Bible says about wealth. It's called The Legacy Journey. And uh, it is a best, national bestseller, I think, Wall Street Journal or something, but it didn't make the times. And um, good chapter in here about contentment. And another, most of the book is about using wealth as a displacer in the marketplace. So Sharon and I decided we'd have a thousand of those shipped over here and We've got one for you as our gift today. If you want one, we'd love for you to have it. Um, Because I just think this stuff's important, y'all. I can't tell you how many little guys like me I run into out there that come from whatever background, but God's taking them somewhere else. It doesn't matter where you're from. It matters where you're going. Jesus has a plan for your life, and we know that. It's not to bring us harm, but to bring us hope. We all know that. We're people of the book. I just need to remember to act like it. That's all I need to do. And it's hard for me. I don't always do good. But some of the best moments I've ever had in my life are sitting on my back deck with some guys that don't know the Lord. And I might be smoking a cigar. That might offend some of you, but it might be happening. And I get the opportunity. One of them starts talking about God, and I get the opportunity right there to talk to him about God and lead him in the sinner's prayer. And right there on the back porch, we had a name. Happened just the other day. Add a name to the Lamb's Book of Life. That's more fun than anything you'll ever do in your life. It's the most fun you'll ever have. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these people. Thank you for our church here. Thank you for our pastors. And uh, God, we just ask that you be in our midst and that you make us who you need us to be for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.